Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studio of WHUPLP Hillsboro, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, does James Cameron dream of virtual sheep? Filmmaker, creator, virtual reality artist James Thomas Huang is here. Murmur is a modern school film show. Welcome, welcome back. Welcome for the first time. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo. I'm the founder of the Modern School of Film and really thrilled to be here with you today to talk about the things we love. Yeah. Uh, we have a website. We love that. We, it's um, murmurradio.com. Social handle is at MSF Murmur. You can also email us murmurradio at gmail.com send us a line let us know you're out there we do tons of cool stuff we're going to do tons more cool stuff so we'd love to know who's there who's listening we're also on itunes google play and stitcher still trying to figure out what stitcher is but we're there murmur radio every week here whup live and bankable uh film has always filmmaking and Moving image making has always worked on a principle. The principle that I've discerned is the principle that life exists and we've tried to capture it. Uh, one of my favorite examples, you know, if you look at the Lumiere brothers, um, they have a film, uh, 1895, they made. Uh, I was not alive then, contrary to popular belief uh, or, or desire. Um, it wasn't for lack of desire, but they have a film called Employees Leaving the Lumiere Factory, and it simply is that. It's uh, their father's factory, uh, people leaving, and the, uh, the Lumiere brothers filming it. I love that film. It shows you that there's this kind of the chicken or egg of moving image capturing has been real life. Let's run and figure out a way to capture it. Now we're into this other world. And I think it's because of virtual reality. And we're into a world of world making, image making, and our world, our terrestrial world is following. So we're sort of doing the reverse process. We can create worlds, artificial worlds. And I think people in the day-to-day world can only dream 
to replicate them. But it will happen, and it is happening. Uh, virtual reality is happening. It's extraordinary, too. Uh, filmmakers, modern household name filmmakers, uh, some late to the dance, some reluctant to get to the dance, are now following. Alejandro Inuritu is is um, working with uh, Lucas's uh, VR department to create a film about to to put you in the experience of people uh, crossing a border, ostensibly Mexico. In this case, as Inuritu is Mexican, Mexico into the United States. Uh, John Favreau is. Uh, doing a VR piece, developing a VR piece. It's a room-scale VR uh, experience, he's calling it, um, based on uh, gnomes and goblins. Uh, Steven Spielberg, who, who recently called VR dangerous, is experimenting now with a kind of experimental experiential VR about a family. It's not a narrative, I don't think. It's more of an experience, but he hasn't said. Uh, James Cameron, in 2014, called virtual reality a yawn. And he said uh, that this, the tools weren't there yet. Well, that's two years later, and, and tools are created really quickly in, in our VR world. Today's guest on Murmur is a VR auteur of the highest order and and maybe the interesting reality of where VR is coming from is maybe not feature filmmaking, maybe not feature filmmakers, but music, Run the Jewels, uh, the extraordinary hip hop group created a virtual reality experience last year. The rapper, musician, comedian, writer, Reggie Watts and Justin Roiland, creator of um, Rick and Morty created a, had a VR talkback and dialogue. So there's VR here. Uh, VR, if we look at cinema, where cinema has sort of done the v, the VR, or you see the sort of VR uh, DNA, a lot of it is in perspective movies. You know, movies offer you something that we seek. We seek a, a perspective. We have our own perspective, but oftentimes we want to sh share the perspective of others. So as VR is evolving, we're actually now intrinsically going to be in a space that's authored entirely by through someone's point of view with our point of view. So virtual reality is a marriage of two points of views. And maybe that's where it does link up to cinema, because cinema has always been a marriage of point of views, sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly. My name is Marlowe, Philip Marlowe. Occupation, private detective. You know, somebody says, follow that guy. So I follow him. Somebody says, find that female. So I find her. And what do I get out of it? Ten bucks a day and expenses. And if you think that buys a lot of fancy groceries these days, you're crazy. Right now, you're reading in your newspapers and hearing over your radios about a murder. They call it the case of the lady in the lake. That's a good title. It fits. What you've read and what you've heard is one thing. The real thing is something else. There's only one guy who knows that. I know it. This lady in the lake business started just three days before Christmas. I was tired of being pushed around for nickels and dimes, so I decided I'd write about murder. It's safer. And besides, they tell me the profits are good. So I pounded out a story on that. And I sent it up to the Kingsby Publications Incorporated. 
specialists in gore. You know, they turn out that kind of thing. I got a letter from them asking me to see them about it. And the letter was signed A. Fromsett, room 950, Meadson Building. Make a note of that. You know, some cases of murder start when that door there behind you opens up and a fellow rushes in, all covered with sweat and confusion, and fills you full of bad dope about the setup. But some cases, like this one, kind of creep up on you on their hands and knees. And the first thing you know, you're in it up to your neck. You'll see it just as I saw it. You'll meet the people, you'll find the clues, and maybe you'll solve it quick, and maybe you won't. You think you will, eh? Okay? You're smart. But let me give you a tip. You've got to watch them. You've got to watch them all the time. Because things happen when you least expect them. Swinging in the backyard, pull up in your fast car, whistling my name. Open up a beer and you say, get over here and play a video game. I'm in his favorite sundress, watching me get undressed, take a body downtown. I see you the bestest, leaning for a big kiss, put his favorite perfume on, go play your video game. It's you, it's you, it's all for you, everything I do, I tell you all the time. Heaven is a place on earth with you, tell me all the things you want to do. I heard that you like the bad girls, honey Is that true? It's better than I ever even knew They say that the world was built for two Only worth living if somebody Is loving you Baby, now Filmmaker Jean Renoir once said um, film was sort of the, the ultimate art form because it combined so many other forms of art, literature, performance, sound, vision, design, costume, photography, light, shadow. Um, it's kind of interesting coming from him because he was a bit of a polymath himself. He, uh, in addition to being one of the great filmmakers, um, was a horse enthusiast uh, also uh, loved motor cars, fixing motor cars, and uh, rode in recognizance missions uh, in airplanes. Um, was actually injured during the First World War. So it's interesting to see that kind of polymathematics work itself out. I wonder what Renoir would have thought of virtual reality. Uh, it's funny, you know, talking about all of the elements, VR filmmaking, VR motion capturing, VR performance incorporates filmmakers like Renoir and and uh, Wells would have just, I think, passed out at the, the very thought of, of, of the potential. Well, if virtual reality is the avant-garde, then today we have with us the Salvador Dali of the form. Um, he uh, is an award-winning creator. Uh, he broke through in the public consciousness, I think, with his 2007 short work, uh, Dollface, which really was a game changer, whether he admits to it or not. Um, his later work, uh, most notably collaborations with Bjork, Adams for Peace, Cigar Rose, commissions from MoMA, uh, Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A., uh, 
uh, museums in Taiwan, South Africa, London. I mean, this man is an artist, but today I'm going to try to convince him that he's also a filmmaker. Please welcome to Murmur, um, Mr. Andrew Thomas Swang, or as Bjork calls him, Andy Huang. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, what are you up to these days? I'm imagining an, a laboratory. I'm imagining your house is like this laboratory come, uh, you know, George Meliesian uh, place where, <laughs> where trap doors exist and there's a pulley system. Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> right now I'm in between projects and I'm writing a lot, actually. I'm trying to write some of my first screenplays. Um, I've written, I'm actually just finished the first draft, draft of my second one. Wow, congratulations. Um, like two nights ago at 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> and, yeah, and I admit that I'm a total rookie in it. And um, so I've been, that's actually has been what I've been mostly focusing on for the past, well, yeah, I guess a couple months. Um, but um, so, yeah, I'm basically on my couch reading a lot and watching a lot and writing a lot. Well, well admitting you have a problem is always the first step to recovery. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, exactly. but, it, but it's interesting, you know, talking about writing, um, w- watching some of the, the backstory of your creation, uh, you use that phraseology, even, I don't know if that's a word, but phrasing, writing a music video. And I think people take for granted that these things are kind of pieces of literature in, in a kind of nuclear sense. Um, is that overstated? I mean, do, do, do we need to pay more attention to that idea of, you know, it's also a, a kind of a quizzical state, a way to state a documentary. Oftentimes at the end of a documentary, it'll say written by filmmaker X or Y. And that can be mm-hmm. a bit of a head scratcher on a documentary level, but on a music video level or, or short form level, where along the spectrum does the writing sit in terms of importance? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, writing to me, like the most important skills, like the most fundamental skills that that I feel like I've been privileged to have and um, learn are just simply writing and drawing, and 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 photography, of course. But I feel like, um, I mean, the only reason why I feel like I've been able to direct is because I can write my concepts. Um, you know, when you get a brief from a, a musician or a record label or a, a advertising agency or whatever that, you know, or you know whether or not you're making a narrative film or whether or not you're making a a purely visual short form piece, um, there always has to be in order to get the money, in order to get the job, <laughs> right? You have to be able to actually distill your concept in succinctly in writing. I mean, images, of course, I, I believe are the most are also the most important. You know, like when you get a treatment, just a PDF of what someone or, or a word document of what someone's thinking, you need, of course, references and, and those visual references, and those leave like uh, a very visceral impact upon whoever's you know um, deciding whether you get the job or not. But you have to be able to distill what you have in mind and into concrete storytelling. Um, even if it's four minutes. And um, so, you know, I've I've written so many treatments, many of which, you know, have been rejected um, over the years. And every time you do it, you get better and better. And, And I think the first time I really learned 
how to do a treatment with this one producer that I was working with showed me, you know, over time, various other directive treatments. And I learned, you know, just how important making presentations is and, and how important it is to cohesively write, you know, why you're making these decisions and, and, and what inspires you yeah. um, and what you envision. Well, it's, so writing is everything. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of tail wagging the dog thing. You know, I think if someone was watching your work from afar, let's say a student, and not to use that as a pejorative, I mean, just let's say abstractly, it may want to make them run out and buy the coolest camera they can at B&H or the, you know, the coolest mm. bit of software. Yeah. 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 Versus the, the headiness of why we do all this, you right, know, right. I think the two are like so intertwined. Um, mm. Like I, I mean, to be frank, I got into this because I was this kind of obsessive kid that was, you know, pretty much had no friends and they just like made stuff like that. Well, you, you made your friends. Puppets were your friends, right? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like I, I just dove into the actual technical, it really is the technical stuff that I fell in love with. You know, it's like, like, Oh, like I can do my own chroma key now. And like, like in 1999, it was the first time I was like, Oh my God, my, like I can actually with the right graphics card, I can take high eight video, convert it, you know? And then like, key digitally key out the uh, like you know the color blue and actually composite my own images just like yeah. they did in star wars you yeah. know and yeah. and then like then it gets into a conversation of like oh like what what is interlace like why am i why are, what is d1 like what is ntsc and pal and all these like video formats you know why then you know looking at film and like pausing it and looking at star wars and like like star wars on vhs and like wondering why my VHS, when I paused it, was like constantly hovering between two frames, and that's when I learned what like interlaced video was, and that's when I learned like why film is progressive and yeah, why it's yeah. twenty-four frames per second and versus twenty-nine nine seven. You know, like I think these things. It's important to know the anatomy of the Frankenstein that you're yeah. trying to you know poking at. Yeah, I think it's important growing up as a kid, if you can, to dedicate yourself to, to something you really, really love and take it all the way to the end of the road. Because, or at least pretty far. Yeah. Because once you do, you start to realize that, well, one, I think you realize discipline. But then the second thing you start to realize is like, why the hell am I doing this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I, I think the this... end of that journey and you're like, what, what was this all for? And then that's when you really have to start asking yourself these really like fundamental questions of like, what, okay, now that I can, you know, do these tricks, um, I know how much energy it takes me. I know that it's very costly. And I know that if I'm going to do it, I better do it for something that I really care about. Um, or that really interests me enough to like spend all the time investment in, in all the technical stuff. Yeah. Um, and my my journey with that was drawing because I love to draw. Um, but then I also loved like video making, and I I ended up like making my own, you know, like visual effects pieces at home when I was in middle school and high school, and then I shared it with um, a woman who worked at blue sky visual effects here in LA and I was like 14 years old. And she said, you know, this is great, but you need to learn. It's like, this is 
she showed me the portfolios of the people that they hire, and it was all animators who had like beautiful life drawing portfolios. Mm-hmm. And she just said, you know, your eye never changes, but the technology does. How brave of you, know? you man! As and, a, as a fourteen, pardon me for interrupting, but as a fourteen-year-old, how brave! How guts! That's gutsy. I mean, that is intensely uh, gutsy. But you know, I brought my VHS tapes of the stuff I was compositing in using like really rudimentary stuff, and 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 um, and this woman gave me two. You know, it was twofold advice. It was you need to train your eye artistically, but and you need to train yourself as an artist because that is more lasting. But she also said, go to Seagraph, you know, like go mm-hmm. to the annual Seagraph yeah. convention and see what, what is technically rolling out every year. Um, so yeah. it, and I, I mean, to your point earlier about film being this multidisciplinary medium, it's true. You kind of have to be this, I think it's hard. Like on the one hand, you have to be the jack of all trades. Um, keeping up with the latest tech and, and, but also you kind of have to have your head. Yeah. You kind of have to remove yourself as well and, and think about why you're doing this and, and, and really use your writing and, uh, you know, your right, your writing brain and, and figure out what you're trying to say with this technology. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a constant dance between that, those two parts of oneself, I think. We're uh, talking with uh, Andrew Thomas Huang on uh, Murmur. Just to go back, some of the imprinting pieces that you mentioned as a child, I, th- I think are fascinating. I, um, there's mm-hmm. someone actually I want to locate a little closer to you because it'll lead me even closer to you. It's someone like Ingmar Bergman, uh, again, very well documented in his memoirs about uh, his mother and father had a rather dramatic marriage. Uh, one of his most prescient and, and motivational uh, objects as a child was his magic lantern, which is an early form of literally projecting images on a wall. And he would take that magic lantern and put it within a, literally a proscenium stage that he would build. He would design the stage. He would design the figures. He would d- design the, the mise-en-scene was him. It was like his little world. I don't know if, if you've seen Fanny and Alexander, but that is quite his childhood, and and the the character of Alexander is very much into these kind of toy boxes. I, I only mention that because with technology, we could think, oh, this guy just knows what the great software is. But your work is about everything. Are you is is that overstating it? You know, you have so many different types of storytellers, right? You've got people like, um, I mean, for lack of a better, I mean, let's just talk about the most obvious guys like George Lucas, right? Like not every movie he makes is is <laughs> great, you know. But, I, I I hadn't noticed. I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> I'm teasing. But he's a great world builder, right? Yeah. He's like he's like um, he knows his worlds, and he, he you can tell he takes the thing he enjoys best, and the thing that he's best at is is just fleshing and rendering out all the details of the world, um, and and taking and relishing in that, you know, like, you know, that, that was, that's the most exciting thing about Star Wars, right? Is like looking at the extras. Right. <laughs> right, right. And like Labyrinth or the Dark Crystal or any of the Jim Henson movies. Um, it's, it is these attention to detail that it's this attention to detail that you absorb as a kid. I think when you watch this stuff. And for me, um, when I was a kid, I didn't, the idea of directing seemed really boring, you know, because it was like, what, what's he do? 
he's just sitting in a chair <laughs> telling people what to do or he's like in a meeting with a bunch of suits telling, you know, trying to sell a movie. It sounded incredibly political and bureaucratic. Um, whereas I wanted to be the person actually, like I wanted to be the set dresser. I wanted to be the person designing the animatronics for the puppet. Like I wanted to be the production designer. I wanted to, you know, actually be the person behind the camera or like, you know, doing the visual effects, like the hands-on tactile, um, play that a movie involves. Like I wanted to be that person, but then, uh, and I couldn't decide, you know, really what I wanted to do. I just knew I really wanted to do all of it because I, I really cared about the fine detail of, of like bringing a world to life. Well, one, you know, it's it's kind of fun watching some of the behind the, the, the works footage of the work you've done with Bjork. You know, you're literally there placing objects on her, you know, whether it's a, a feather or a stone. or And I love that. I think that's a great modeling, so to say, for young filmmakers, young creators, young content creators, you know, again, thinking of someone like Terry Gilliam. I mean, to me, those filmmakers and you, there's something very, you know, you, you mentioned very sort of, I don't want to say film school as a pejorative, but I think we lose that along the way. You know, we lose that yeah. because as you know, as you know, we you get into bigger things and there are more people and there are unions. But it's funny, you mentioned something on, again on the Sigur Rose piece that you did it was a big project, but you were kind of in the middle of it working a lot on it because I think filmmaking and or content creation can be kind of lonely, not, not to bum you out here, but do you feel like there are times when the, the uh, monogamy of it is uh, wears on you or is there kind of a time and place for everything? Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a kid, I, that was also what for me, like, Filmmaking is kind of like, um, you know, it's like theater in that it's this like sanctioned play space with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like with within the context of making a film, me, uh, you know, suddenly I can play with people, and and it's like okay, you know, it's like we're all, we're all there with the goal of like making this world real, you know. And I think having those confines of making or the uh, the common objective of making something together is is really important and makes it's why I got into this you know I mean I could have decided to be a painter or something really insular but um but you know dreaming together on something I know that sounds really cheesy but you know it's true it's like it's what it's the reason why we do this however at the same time you've got like real practical logistical concerns, right? Like yeah, everybody's busy. Yeah, yeah. Everybody has their own life. Yeah. Everyone needs to pay their bills and eat. And, you know, when when you're trying to make something that isn't conventional, that isn't um some blockbuster Hollywood narrative, um yet you want it to have the richness and the robustness of, of like a of a high level production, you've got the these you've got this like puzzle to solve of like, I've only got so much money. Mm. I need your morale and your, and, and the, and the, and the enthusiasm of a team to help me realize it. So then you suddenly have to become that cheerleader and that, that person beating the drum, you know, rallying everybody to do this, not for the money, but because you believe in it. And, and I think the only way to do that. You know, my my mom always would tell me that my grandfather, you know, who he created a, we had a family restaurant, but he would eat with the cooks, <laughs> like he would eat with all the staff. 
um, and um, and and I just it was always like ingrained in me that like I think you know it everyone gets along better if you're in the trenches with them making the stuff yeah yeah um, as opposed to acting like their boss um, I, I, because that that yeah. then that then that becomes about power and that's really boring and um, hurt, you know ends up I think you know it's like the, that's also the worst part of filmmaking is like yeah. hierarchy and um you know all this political shit um but i but i feel like uh you know you're there because there's a world that's real and you're trying to coax it out and you need to be there rolling up your sleeves with everybody doing it and i think every i do think that if you that is a very like you said uh, almost a film school mentality because yeah when you're in film school, you don't have anything. You've got no. It's uh, Katie bar the door. We got to get this done. You, you you do what you can using the skills that you have. In the 20th century, most directors delegated and, and like they they were the drum beaters that pulled a crew together and made something happen. But they didn't necessarily have to be the person doing it themselves. Yeah. Or yeah. you know they didn't necessarily have to be have this hands-on approach. But I think because of we live in a different time now, right? There are so many directors. There's so many filmmakers. It's funny. I, I would envision you as a perfect collaborator because I, I would actually suggest that even though you've worked with some of the great artists of music and, and motion imagery, and but let's stay in the music sector. You know, we talked about Bjork and Tom York and, and the Sigur Rose gentlemen and others. Um, you have a skill set that could be arguably actually intimidating, was it easy to get their trust? Because trust can get lost when there's a lot of hardware and software around, I think. Yeah. It's a really good question. I think gaining someone's trust is, for me, is one of the scariest things. Well, I feel like I've learned a lot from Bjork specifically um, on how to enter collaborative relationships. I think she's obviously, like, one of the best. Like, she's worked with so many people over her career, and I just, through the way she interacted with me, I learned, I just learned through absorption. But I think once you start making your own work and start owning your own work and broadcasting out there and showing what you're about, and then you attract the people that, then, then you, then what happens is you start attracting people that are like-minded. If you're as some, if you're somebody at, who is as like open and generous as Bjork is, Together, you start kind of being like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of like um, brainstorm together and pick out things that you both re- resonate with or don't resonate with. So, you know, she sends me the app that she did for Biophilia. Um, we talk about tectonic plates. We talk about love and friction and explosions and, you know, like subtraining and emotions. And, and we start making like, kind of synaptic connections between, you know, common narratives and then create a story that way. And, and then, then, then that's how the piece is made, you know, and then that's how trust is built. And I think Tom was similar in that, you know, he reached out and he didn't want me to just, I mean, I, again, every collaborator is different, right? Like, yeah. I think Tom, yeah. I remember, he did just send me the track, and he didn't give me a brief. And I sent him something based on 
stuff that I was interested in, in on at the time. And to be honest, he was like, nah, I just did that. Or he was like, no, nah, I'm not interested in that. Mm. Or, you know, I would even like look through all of his other work. You know, I mean, I was already a big radio head. Oh, I was going to say that, of his videos. that's kind of a scary bar to look at. I mean, you you know, for both Bjork and, and Tom, you know, because I know you've talked a lot about Michelle Gondre and Chris Cunningham and Spike Jones. I mean, that's a, that's like looking down when you're crossing the Grand Canyon, man. <laughs> I mean, to go oh, back in their catalog, you know? No, you have no idea. I mean, you do. Like, I, I was like so hyper-aware. It's like the No Surprises like, video is, you know, there's so many videos that are just all-time, you know, oh-so-quiet. They're, like, so cla- they're in the canon. I mean, these are, you know, but one thing you said about Tom, which I thought was interesting, that he gave you time, which is the greatest asset in the sense that it, it sounded like it wouldn't have been released until it was ready or good or there. Is that overstating it? That that he wanted it to well, be right. Yeah, I think, I think, I think the thing about trust, right, is that it requires two. Right. It requires a patient musician and client, basically. Like, Tom was a patient and understanding and generous collaborator, just as Bjork was. You know, if it would have been different if, if they were off doing their thing and their record label and their management are like, we need this video by this time, you right, know? Like, right, right. You know, I mean, to be honest, that's how most of <laughs> That's work. right. I mean, the, the, the situations that I've been in have been incredibly rare. Yeah. Um, and it's because I honestly give credit to them because they're the musicians and artists that, that want to have, um, an intimate and thoughtful dialogue with the people that they're collaborating with, as opposed to most musicians. I mean, like most artists are just really trusting their record labels and their management and their creative directors to throw together their visuals for them. Um, it's, but Tom and Bjork don't, you know, like, um, and I feel like uh, with Tom, I, I you know I wrote five different treatments for him, um, but it required my own vulnerability too to just be like, here's an idea. Right. What do you think? Right. Like, I, like or like, hey, you know. And if he's like, nah, I don't like it. I'm like, hey, that's cool. Like, um, you know, gotta start somewhere, right? right? right you know, like, right, right. Um, yeah. And and like, let's wh- let's take another whack at this. Um, and then you know, like he he was actually quite reluctant to tell me what the song was about. Um, you know, it's, it's it, you know, some people hate talking about their work, yeah, you know, and yeah. so I'm just like, so what's the song about? And he was like, oh, I don't know. I He was just like, he was like tired and like didn't, <laughs> he was just kind of like, oh, you know, I was just driving and <laughs> on the 10 freeway and I was in traffic and I was thinking about actors in Hollywood and I don't know, just it's all miserable. <laughs> you know? Like, and I, was like, I feel okay. a Radiohead so I feel a Radiohead song coming on right now. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, and then and yeah. then I look at his album, the Stanley Donwood album artwork. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean, uh, the the album artwork was literally like Los Angeles being swept away Amazing. by apocalypse. And and you know, obviously, just researching Tom's activism, looking at his Twitter, seeing what he's tweeting, what he's reading. Um, then I can come up with a scenario, a story about a city in the desert that is unsustainable and is kind of a shell of itself. And maybe we're, maybe it's like post-apocalyptic, like the city has already been destroyed and we're just seeing it's, it's, uh, lasting, we're just seeing an effigy of it. We're just seeing the, the lasting kind of Ozymandias, like Percy Shelley kind of remnants of this, you know, uh, bygone civilization and Tom is the the you know this singing crumbling statue 
Um, so you know, it, 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 Andrew, that that's been done to death, man. I'm sorry to tell you that. <laughs> I'm joking. That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, you, you so, know, just as a coda, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just as a coda, do you think Tom York would be a good actor in a in a film, a scripted film? I always wondered that about him because I think they're incredible on stage. Great, yeah. I know his his eyes are are they're they're fast. They're intoxicating. He's not a traditional visage in that way. Do you think he would be an interesting actor with a script? I always wonder that about him. I think he would. I think I think all these people are. But I think I think. Um, well, Bjork. I mean, I think people like. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like that. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's phenomenal, right? Yeah, I mean, Dancer but in the I Dark is one of the great Bjork. performances in in in. I was going to say American movie history, but it's Danish, set in America, et cetera. But it's a it's one of the great performances, I think. But anyway, I digress. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because it's real. Yeah, and it's yeah. because she's not maybe acting. all too real. It's, yeah. it's real. It's real torment, and and Lars von Trier really was tormenting her, and 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 she. Uh, that's kind of you know. I think I think after doing Black Lake with her, um, that's when actually. I mean, that's a whole other story. One thing I want not to get too cute about it, but were you a fan of Matthew Barney? Were you a fan of Cremaster? In the sense of, did you know of Matthew's yeah, work? Mean, uh, had you seen Drawing Restraint Nine? You know, did, was not, not not was the ghost of Matthew there? I'm just saying, were you in touch with that spectrum of art within that 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 petri dish you were working with? Let's say that in as much as Matthew Barney obviously was a part of her tradition, so to say. I think it's fair to say Matthew's kind of the George Lucas that influenced all. Yeah you know, video art and turned it into this blockbuster. I mean, you know, to be honest, I actually haven't seen the Cremaster. I've seen bits and pieces of the Cremaster cycle. You must. I'm not telling you something you don't know. Well, two things. It's only available to screen in a cinema unless you find it on the street somewhere, which you may. It should be required viewing for everyone near a programming or a, a motion, anything that's time-based or not time-based, programmatic, video games, I don't care if it's Rockstar Games or Lucasfilm, sorry to get on my soapbox, that should be required viewing only from the point of view of craft. I mean, sorry to steal that moment yeah. from you, but, I, you no, know, it, I, yeah, I, I don't make, I, I, want you to feel badly. I just think it's, it's, it's an it's a opus. It's a masterwork. Anyway. Yeah, I kind of feel like one of those people that says, like, I haven't seen Star Wars or, like, I haven't seen Indiana Jones. I haven't seen the Kremlin. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but I've seen clips of it. <laughs> yes. Uh, we're talking with uh, Andrew Thomas Wang on Murmur. I want to get a little bit into vocabulary and then one other topic and then we can bid adieu. Vocabulary time. Yeah. We're in a tricky stage now. I, f- I feel like we're back to Thomas Edison a little bit. I always tell my students, you know, Thomas Edison used to do uh, films. His, some of his films were literally kittens with boxing gloves boxing, which is a YouTube video as far as I'm concerned. I mean, we're kind of back to square. So I think a lot of these terms don't hold anymore. One I want to put in your lap and I want you to define it and I want you to tell me what you think of the term music video. What do you think of that term? Hmm. Uh, I think of it in terms, um, I think of it like the way, um, things, it's called exaptation when something is evolved for a certain purpose, like feathers. Um, I, I think of music videos as a cathode tube era term, um, but that now is more relevant than ever on YouTube. Mm. 
Um, I guess my first word would be, yeah, like, I, I think for me, music videos, the word is still extremely relevant. Do you it's like just, it? Do you like it? Do you like the term? Um, yeah, I think I like the word in the same way that I like, you know, Pepsi or Coke. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like the way you say, even movies, right? Movies sounds, is actually a really kind of, right. it's like an old tiny term that we just have adapted. Yes. Um, so I, yeah, I guess that's kind of how I feel about it. I mean, I, I hear. I guess. I guess the thing is, but when you say music video, it, there's a there's like a reductive quality to it, right? Yeah, I like, guess maybe I mean, it's I my Italian like, cynicism. I didn't, mean, you know, I meant it. You know, like I tried to be as atonal as possible. But yes, that's kind of implicit in the question. But you're you're uh, a higher brain form here, so I wanted to get your take on it. When you say when you call. Michael Jackson's, well, no, let's, let, let's, let's pick out something like, I don't know, when you think of the most timeless music videos, you know, or the ti- or I guess maybe you think of the most timeless movies, you know, to call it a movie as opposed to a film or as opposed to cinema, like movie does feel a bit like, you know, it's kind of, it is reductive, but I, but I think, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't really look at it, I, at the same time, I don't really look at it that way, you know, I think, I think the most I think I think it's important, especially now more than ever, to look at this stuff as a democratic medium, um, as an accessible medium. Um, it should be, because that's the you know, we, we want this stuff to be seen and we want it to be enjoyed by everybody. And I even think you know, I still enjoy watching top 40 hit music videos. I, in fact, I, I, I feel like it's almost, res- it's, it's responsible of me to watch them. <laughs> I, it's my responsibility to keep track of what Taylor Swift is doing or what um, Rihanna is doing or what Beyonce is doing, because this is the language of the, the, the zeitgeist. Um, and this is um, what we, you know, I call it, I call it post cynicism or post irony, you know, like, like, like to know, to, to be able to relish both and understand and and acknowledge both as, as, you know, this is, this is a a gourmet meal and this is a banana and this is, you know, French fries. Like these are all parts of our, our diet. And, and in order for me to like, as a chef to like make my, my own music videos and my own films and my own craft, I kind of have to know and and kind of respect what's out there. Well, I, um, I think so that for me, that's why I, yeah. I'm okay with the term music video. So, do, do you have a bone that to pick with I, music video? I'm I'm, try, I'm trying to no, I'm trying to figure out a better word and and and, but I but I think I figured something two things out about my own relationship to that term. Um, you you mentioned, and I think rightfully so, whether I heard it this way or you intended it this way, that you know. W- w- whether it be the time of day, the country we sit in, or the moment, we can call something a movie or a film or a work of cinema. I guess what bothers me, we don't have the versatility with that form of music video because you know your your work. You've done you did something w- with Bjork, which you call f- called Family, which is a short film. 
but you know, in in the eye of a different beholder, that could be looked at as a music video because of the pop, mm-hmm. the popular tenants and tags aren't there. There's it's 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 all sung through, and you know we can g- get boring with all that. So I guess I'm looking for uh, a, a a hack of that term. Jonas Ackerlin is going to be a guest on our show uh, in a couple weeks, and Mark Romanek is going to be a guest of our show. And what I love about what you said about Taylor Swift, the the, the great video music video directors are still making music videos. I mean, yes, yeah, Spike and Michelle, they don't make as many. You know, Jack White may call them up and say, hey, you know, but I love the fact that those great video makers from the late 80s and 90s are still doing great work. Like Jonas Ackerlin dire- directed Lemonade. Uh, he was Madonna's video mm-hmm. maker. I love that because I think music videos are still... They're where the rubber meets the road in terms of what is the limit that popular culture will accept art, you know. So to answer your question, I'm working on a better term. The term music video inherently describes a business model. Yeah. um, And, uh, yeah. For those of us who still stagger in the unidimensional art art uh and as a multi-dimensional artist amongst other things that i as i see you what do you think film still does one screen one visage yeah. no headsets no and i'm not trying to be glib or pejorative what do you think that experience still does optimally you know i've been thinking about this a lot and i think vr is forcing us to ask that question yeah Did, how do you see hardcore henry I have not. Have you seen it? I have. And how is it? It's exhausting, but I think successfully exhausting. I, I'd love for you to see it because I'd love to hear. I should sit down and watch it because I think that it, um, I think it's a perfect movie in response to VR at the yeah. moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's maybe the only one that I can think of that, that I feel maybe responds to VR in, in a timely way. Um, have, have you ever seen or heard of La- I, Lady, I in, Lady in the Lake? Do you know that film? It's a film noir that was done all first person. Um, it was 1947. Uh, Robert oh, Montgomery. No. He, it's Philip Marlowe, actually. And it's all oh, first person. Cool. Put that on your homework list, Mr. Huang. I will. I yeah. want a full report on my disc. I'm sorry. To- movies to watch. In my opinion, I think VR is a spatial and sculptural medium. Yeah. More than a temporal one. Right. And I feel that film is still a temporal, it's primarily a time-based syntactical medium. Like, I feel like it's, it's, uh, film is like, you know, a piece uh, of linear uh, storytelling, and it's still, you've still got this frame, and the frame is like, your it's like when you write with your hand you have to keep your hand moving so that the text you know it reveals itself in the wake of your hand you know like yeah, film yeah. is like that your the frame of your camera is like your hand moving across the page and but like vr is like so walking into a room and there's like a sculpture in front of you and it, it demands something of you because, you, like, you have to figure out how to interact with it and how yeah. to negotiate that space. Yeah. And but you negotiate it on your own terms. You decide when you look where. Whereas, film is like reading down a page or like listening to music. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't control it. It it's it's a passive experience. Yeah. And I think. Yeah. I think um, when you create VR, you have to think more like you're planning a party. 
you know, I'm going to put the drinks over here. I'm going to put, you know, we're going to play this music, but, you know, I'm going to put the lava lamps over here, and this is going to be, like, the makeout room, and this is going to be the, you know, the dance room. And, you know, and, and like, you have to create these, um, you have to play God in that you set everything up uh, you set everything up in the beginning, but then you kind of let go, yeah. and then you let you let the world kind of you let the participants unfold. Right. <laughs> you know, well, there there are corridors who write who who there's a free will within a godlike universe. Yes, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or it's like it's like planning a Disneyland ride. You know. Yes, um, at Epcot, you but know, not control where people look. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I think Hitchcock would have hated it because he yeah, yeah, for sure. it was all about the ticking clock. And, you know, it's the famous line of Hitchcock. Why did why does the soundtrack? Why does the score for Psycho only have uh, strings? He said, because I wanted mm-hmm. to play I wanted to play the audience like a violin. You know, we're in this new intimacy space. We like these event cinema things. We like the, you know, sleep no more. We like our theater to be all around us. You know, there, there's this thing called secret cinema in London. I don't know if you've heard of it or gone to it where I have. Yeah, it's it's you know, it's a party. Uh, it's a film, a celebration of a film where you're in the world. What are we see? What do you feel like? The audiences are seeking. What's the connectivity between all these things? VR, event cinema, sleep no more. What are what is what is the public telling us? Again, not a small question. (laughs) Sorry. I think people keep talking about um, the newness of these mediums and that 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 that's what people want. But to be honest, most of my friends and I and everybody I know still want to go home on a Saturday night and watch Netflix or like YouTube. (laughs) You know, like I know that these new media, uh, new media create awesome stories, and that there there is bound, there are boundaries to push with this new technology, and that those are really amazing stories, and people want to experience those stories in the in in these new spectacular ways. But people still want people still read their books and yeah. and yeah. watch their movies. So I feel like the age we're in is just simply another onion skin layer there's it we're in the same we're in the same interdimensional charnel ground you know like <laughs> media that we've always been in yes it's just that we've got this new extra veneer on top which is vr it's this next onion skin layer that that we're you know putting on it's the it is the fashion du jour you know to make vr um there is this vr gold rush but um vr is yet just another room and it's another stadium and another stage a platform that people can tell these stories so that's how kind of i feel about it i i think i'm not that we're moving discreetly from one era to another interesting um media wise but that we are just adding another onion skin layer of of a possibility on top of what we already have you know looking at sundance which i don't always look to but it just was kind of fun to to hear that uh al gore is premiering a VR uh, piece at this year's Sundance. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's the old joke, and I don't know if you've ever seen The Family Guy, where Stewie and Brian open a club, and it's a really cool club in Quahog until Andy Dick Uh shows up, until Andy Dick shows up, and then they have to close the club down because it's not cool anymore. (laughs) I'm not saying Al Gore is going to make VR uncool, but (laughs) what... what, it is moving closer to center, or as you say, maybe it's been on our side the whole time. As these things are moving f- closer to one another, do you look ahead, or do you kind of sit 
in the middle and sort of see where we are. What does your work seek to reflect, the present or the future? Oh, well, really good question, man. Sorry, man. That was um, a good one. I should no, have asked that good. like it's good. It's good. 20 it's minutes really ago. Good. I've, I, uh, mm, I do feel like I'm always thinking and I'm always talking with my friends and even Bjork, you know, like where we, we do talk and exchange ideas a lot about where we think are going or where we want things to go or, or ideas that we have. We, I mean, we often have ideas, and I often have ideas of things that I want to do that are just not feasible yet. The thing that I want to do in VR is to have more videogrammetry where I'm scanning people real-time, creating photogrammetric models 24 frames per second, and that way we can navigate around an actor as opposed to, uh, you know, shot with LiDAR, basically, um, instead of having to um, recreate them you know, as you see in like games like Uncharted, you know, like, um, like that, that's really what I'm waiting for. But, and it's here, it's here already, but it costs like 40 grand for 10 minutes of shooting. Mm. So it's like, I could, I could in a given moment, spend all my chips and my energy hacking and, and, politically maneuvering to get this equipment and create the, the the first word art, you know, in this medium, or I could wait a little bit, see how things fall and, and, and use, pick up this medium when it's becoming a little bit more accessible. I think you, I think one always has to decide economically yep. what kind of investment you want to make and, Having done a few VR pieces already, I'm just going to be really honest and say I still think the medium needs another one or two years mm. um, well, it, in it, order to have maximum reach. It, on a pure emotional level, yeah. I hate spending all this work on something and not being able to share it with people. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like I've created, it's like putting all this work into creating Fleet No More, but most people can't see it unless you're in New York. Yeah. You know, yeah. I feel the future sh- should be. Of, of this medium should be, you know, in platforms like Sketchfab. Have you seen Sketchfab? No, I haven't. What's that? It's basically a live, it's like YouTube for 3D models. Oh, cool. Um, but you can just open Sketchfab, uh, go to sketchfab.com, look at an entire library of, of 3D models that people have built, some which are actually animated and moving. Some people have created full environments. You know, like an entire castle that you can like navigate through just on your, oh, you know, laptop, and and for me it's like, and then there's a VR button where if you click it, you can, you can either view it in your browser or you can view it in a mobile platform. So you know, for me, it's like that. I feel like there's something that no one's tapped there yet of like, hey, why don't we add sound? Once once Sketchfab adds sound. And once you can actually upload an animation that is more than five minutes long, mm. you, you can basically create an entire game-driven VR world, and you can access it easily through your browser. That's what I'm waiting for. Because right now, everyone needs a box on their face. I wish you the best, man. Um, you're thoughtful. You're, you're even more thoughtful than you were talented, and that's rare. So thank you for spending some time with us. I know there's thousands of, of more ideas to talk about, and maybe we'll do this again if you allow us to. But we thank you for being here on Murmur with us. Andrew Thomas Wang, thank oh, you yeah. so much, thank man. Thank you very much. I'm honored. Thank you. Cheers. Be well. So... 
uh, we want to thank Andrew. He's he's awesome. Andy Huang. Uh, this is what we're going to have to decide. Uh, our world, our society, our physical world, our architectural world is impermanent. And I don't mean that from a spiritual point of view. Uh, today, at least, I don't mean that. I mean that anything physical that we can touch and we need will disappear or reappear or be fabricated in a virtual sense. So homes, cars, I truly believe this. I think something no Nostradamus can uh, foresee is, uh, you know, the biology transitions, the biological transitions of, you know, if, if I lived in a virtual home with a virtual car and a, let's say a virtual dog, would I, how would I eat? And would I be virtual? You know, what, what will everything f- flip, you know, and, and this is insanely head, heady, heavy stuff for the last few minutes of our, <laughs> our, our time with you. But I will go back to the Lumiere brothers. The Lumiere brothers were not artists uh, by definition. They were in, they were, their father created lenses. He was a lens builder. And the, the young men saw an opportunity. And uh, they didn't even think it would last, in a sense. They, they thought cinema and film was a film viewing, movie watching was temporary. And I think they sought to cash in. My point is, these virtual constructs are now importing artistry to make them the, the perfect balance, quote-unquote perfect balance between utility and beauty, art, potentially art. Uh, it happens in every medium. I remember when comic book publishers were reaching out to playwrights to tell better stories. Uh, video games were hiring uh, video directors, feature film directors to direct video games and having actors voice them. This is happening here, but I think what it's emblemizing, rather than one group importing another, is that the groups are the same. You know, Andy Huang is a artist who knows coding and illustration and photography, and this form of of human, <laughs> this artist, this I mean, artist, the word almost is useless, and that's maybe one of the most frightening postscripts here. I think the rest, you know, we're going to have to wait and see. But there will be a time when so much of our world will be virtual. And then it's not virtual anymore. Then it is the world. I mean, virtual is sort of implicit in the word is is a kind of alternative to something. So what's the, the what is post-virtual? Oh, gosh. You've tuned into NPR. <laughs> what What is post-virtual? Uh, because once, and it's here, as Andy said several times, it's here, it's now. We're all, we're merging into a, a place where virtual is not the norm, certainly, but I think people are and engineers and builders and inventors and mathematicians and statisticians and advertising and marketeers are pushing it into a place where the new it will be a new norm and then the, the new new norm will be next and that that will be really fascinating. How much of this will exist in my lifetime, I'm not sure, uh, certainly. But I know I'm getting, I'm becoming more and more interested as this virtual 
world becomes our world. We want to thank you for being here with us this week on Murmur. I want to thank Andy Huang. Listen to us every week, Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, live, whuplpfm.org, murmurradio.com, iTunes, Stitcher, we'll figure that out, Google Play. See you soon.